Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So did you guys see the big news this week that Melania Trump has unveiled what her signature initiative will be should she become our first lady. I gotta say, I thought it was a joke when I read it. My breath is baited. What is it? Uh, she is going to focus and as first lady on issues related to cyberbullying. Wow. Yeah, and she's gonna start at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck. I mean, with that. maybe that is, right? Maybe it's maybe it's like her pointed you know, critique of Trump. Yeah, this of is her own brilliant. husband. Mm-hmm. She's gonna, so she's gonna roll out the campaign. She's gonna be like, but anti-bullying education starts in the house, including the white one. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. You can, you can come up with all sorts of good slogans for this. But meanwhile, because the election is rigged, they're not gonna actually be in the white oh, house. Yeah. They're gonna, there's the, the, the rootless cosmopolitan international bankers are getting together with the international media to, you know, keep them out. And, I just and, came and, from and, our and with all the actually. black people who were dead in, <laughs> yeah. in Philadelphia who were going to vote. Yeah. Um, you are, know. They, are they out there with the trilateral commission? <laughs> yes. We've been reanimating their corpses to make <laughs> I mean, sure we can get them to vote every, often every, and every early. Every damn conspiracy theory, like, you think is some weird bircher uh, Fluoridated water. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's sort of showing up in the Trump campaign. Uh, I'm going to be sad when it's all over. I uh, am not yeah. at all. I'm not weeping. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the thank God we're not in Kansas anymore edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Um, it feels like June here in lovely October. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's jungly in our jungle studio. It sure is. It's. I feel like we're like going back in time. Remember before the nomination? Can we just like relive it all again? No. Would you love to go back to June? <laughs> oh, kill me now. We, we still have to talk about Ted Cruz. <laughs> yeah. Remember those? Remember that guy? Yeah. Those days seem so long ago. They uh, do seem long ago. What else seems long is that like the whole Trump video thing a week ago. Yeah. It yeah. was only a week ago. Not a month. Not yeah. a year. As a friend of mine commented on a podcast this week, we were so innocent then. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, we're here in the studio with my good friends Tamara Coppin-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hey, Hey. Shane. Uh, Big week. Uh, We're not going to actually get to talk about debates at the top of the podcast because there's one tonight. We're recording this on Wednesday. The last one. By the time you listen to this, everything we're talking about will be irrelevant because we will only be talking about – Whatever the, conspiracy the, theory Trump puts the out. The latest in outrage from the debate. So this is like, consider this podcast almost like a time capsule yeah. of your, the, the period of your innocence when, when the third debate had not happened yet. But that's what we're here for. We're here to highlight the important stories that the rigged media won't cover. That's right. That's right. 
Well, we've rigged up a great, I mean, uh, gotten together a great slate of stories <laughs> for you here today. Uh, Iraqi and U.S. forces begin the campaign to reclaim the city of Mosul, ISIS's de facto capital in Iraq. Retired General James Cartwright pleads guilty to lying to federal leak investigators. And three Kansas men are accused of plotting attacks on Muslims, plus object lessons. Um, why don't we start with the uh, the campaign to take back Mosul, um, uh, which obviously is we were anticipating for some time, even though Donald Trump said we should launch a sneak attack. Uh, we'll try to make this a Trump-free podcast as much as possible. Please, God. <laughs> but uh, so the campaign has begun with Iraqi forces in the lead, uh, taking a number of villages on the outskirts of Mosul right now, and then the plan is eventually that Iraqi counterterrorism units, which are their elite force, will start to go in uh, and fight for Mosul. Um, but uh, tomorrow, why don't you start with me talking about, you know, that we've, we've gone through the lead up to this, but do you want to talk a bit about both the significance of taking Mosul and the challenges that you think they're going to face and, and anything else you think is significant now that we're in this campaign that, you know, probably will last, I would imagine, well past the election and maybe into the next administration. Right. So President Obama's war against ISIS, which started just over two years ago, began with sending U.S. military advisors back into Iraq to help rebuild the Iraqi army's counterterrorism uh, capability. So this is, in many ways, the first big test of that effort, um, the Iraqi counterterrorism force and Iraqi army units uh, going in to take back this territory leading up to Mosul, and then they're going to have to fight probably building to building or even house to house uh, to take the city. There are a few things I think worth watching as this rolls out. Obviously, the performance of Iraqi forces is one, but they are, in fact, getting help uh from the United States, although our Pentagon insists that our own personnel are well back from the front line. Uh, also from Kurdish forces who are simultaneously attacking from Erbil uh, to the east of Mosul. And um, there is the question of Shia militias and what role they're going to play in this campaign as it goes forward. But for right now, the Iraqi army is in the lead. Um, a couple things to keep our eyes on, and I think this campaign is probably going to take a couple months uh, because they are th- – apparently ISIS has heavily mined and booby-trapped the territory outside Mosul, um, and so it's going to take a while to move forward. There are still a lot of civilians uh, inside the city. ISIS has uh, blocked people from leaving. Um, although we have begun to see some flows out uh, both to the east or Kurdish territory and also now Iraqi refugees going into Syria. Like that tells you something about how bad it's been under ISIS rule that these Iraqis are fleeing into a civil war to get away from where they've been. So the humanitarian side, I think, is going to be a tremendous challenge for the international community, for the Iraqis, the Kurds and uh, the U.N. agencies operating in Syria. But the other dimension is um, what happens on the other side. When Mosul is eventually taken, and I think there's every reason to believe it will be, um, if nothing else, ISIS can just melt away and fight uh, as an insurgency, and we've seen that before. Uh, but who will govern Mosul? How will that be structured? Uh, what will be the balance between um rule from the central government in Baghdad, which is Shia-led, and a lot of Iraqi Sunnis do not trust, and local governance. The local Mosul government that was there before ISIS took over 
probably doesn't have this, you know, the legitimacy that one would hope. Um, and so if you want to keep ISIS out or any extremists out of this predominantly Sunni town, you have to make sure that the governance you replace ISIS with is effective and legitimate in the eyes of the local population. And frankly, that's a tough one for this Iraqi government. And do we know anything about what the Iraqi government has planned in that regard? Uh, I think the biggest problem right now is just that there's a lack of clarity. Uh, I think the default would be for the previously uh, extant Mosul council to be reinstated. Uh, and uh, and for the civilians that have been living under ISIS rule all that time while their leadership had fled, I'm not sure that's going to be acceptable. I mean, one sort of interesting dimension is um, what happens when you remove the common enemy from a group of people, right? You have uh, you have groups that are, do not necessarily have aligned interests, have sort of deep suspicions among them, um, but have sort of been united against this this common threat of ISIS and and when you take away kind of the one thing you have in common which is this oppositional force um whether what what you can find to replace that right it, it sort of seems like it has to be a, a common purpose or or splitting things up um uh is there any sort of concern that that once sort of ISIS is purged just the infighting becomes sort of wh whoever's the strongest force ends up winning? What sort of well, the, the isn't that fear? the story of Iraq in a way? I mean, ever since uh, this, the U.S.-led surge kind of put a damper on the Iraqi civil war, um, that's been precisely the challenge is do people then just devolve to tribal or sectarian allegiances or whoever's got the money, you know, or whoever's got goodies to give away? then becomes the top dog and everybody else then tries to claw them down and become king of the hill. One of the things I wondered about this campaign is, <clears throat> you know, how hard of a fight does ISIS put up? Because there have been sometimes where, and you mentioned this before, they kind of melt away, they become insurgents. Um, the Wall Street Journal actually had a story this week that sort of in the middle of the piece quoted a anonymous ISIS commander saying that the plan actually is to try and move their forces out and retreat back to Syria and, you know, where they feel like they're more protected. Let's just Can say I that just they point do. out that it's weird that the Wall Street Journal is sourced in ISIS. And no, but a lot of Western journalists yeah. have sources in ISIS. Sure. And these are very English proficient guys yeah. that they WhatsApp with or text with uh -huh. or whatever. And yeah. I think it was a Skype interview or something I, like that. I know. I just... Think it's weird. I'm not That's saying what that, journalists. Do, I'm not man. saying it's not good journalism. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, but it's like sources in ISIS. Everything. That. <laughs> Our sources an anonymous mid-level commander in ISIS. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like just give me a fake name. I mean, no one knows. Um, but it raised this question. I was talking about this with a colleague this week, saying, "Okay, let's just say that they retreat and they say, forget it, we're pulling out.'" Does it just send a message then to, to to its followers? We no longer have a caliphate, or we've given up part of the caliphate. Do you have to change the name? That, so you, there's no longer, you know, Iraq in the name of ISIS or Daesh, or everyone to talk about it. I mean, what 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 do you think? I mean, if they were to pull away, does that just spell a huge? Uh, uh, does it just embarrass them greatly in front of the followers they're trying to attract? Well, so I think this is something that the counter-ISIS coalition is playing up, that we're going to make sure they lose their territory so they lose their claim to a state, and that's going to be just a huge blow to their appeal. Um, I, I don't know how well that's going to play out in practice. I think, number one, we've already seen a dynamic whereby ISIS, when it loses territory, uh, 
looks for out-of-area operations. So it very well could presage increased attempts to attack in, for example, European cities or in the United States um, or in other more, you know, vulnerable soft targets. Um, But the other thing is that ISIS is already kind of shifting its propaganda around precisely this issue in anticipation of this campaign and saying that, you know, and also the loss of Dabiq, uh, in Syria, which they lost last week. So they're basically arguing that the caliphate exists. It exists in our hearts. It exists in our, in our bodies, in our movement. Whether or not it exists in a particular town is not relevant. And, uh, and in the long run, you know, we will triumph. The end of the world is at hand and you have to have faith in the prophecy. So I, I think they're already, as good ideologists do, tacking to adjust to reality, and they've got a lot of tools to work with. Do you think people who, I mean, I haven't heard this, but I could imagine some people might imagine that the Obama administration did this in the final months as sort of a, you know, a gift to Hillary Clinton or something like this. I mean, is there, what what do you make of the timing of this? And I mean, and it seems that it's going to be, it's going to get handed off, right, to whoever the next person is. So should they have waited? I mean, is there, you know, are there people who are going to claim this was politically... And I ask that because, of course, we claim everything is a conspiracy. Well, because it's rigged, Shane. We know this. <laughs> the fight against we, ISIS is rigged. Yes. Everything. Everything is political and everything is rigged. Just take it for granted. But honestly, like, this fight against ISIS is not going to be over even if Mosul falls tomorrow. And by the way, even if Mosul falls tomorrow, that doesn't mean Mosul is going to be stabilized right. and, you know, for sure going to remain under Iraqi government sovereignty. I mean, if anything, you would sort of expect that um, this is a risky PR move. I think even the New York Times and others have reported that the um, uh, the decision to go now was was um, a sort of an, an Iraqi-led uh, mm. timeline. Um, it, what's interesting is that uh, the messaging to the public, right, both the, both the American public and and sort of um, uh, the public, sort of the global public, about um, what's going to happen, right? This is, you know, protracted urban warfare. This is not a, um, uh, I think people have become sort of accustomed to these ideas of sort of special operations forces moving in in the dark of night, and then by the next morning, it's all over. Um, that this is something that's that's very different, that's very messy, it's really complex. Um, you have lots of civilians mixed in with people. Um, you know, there I haven't seen uh, a lot of sort of expectation setting about uh, what winning looks like, what losing looks like, and also sort of um, uh, messaging about uh, civilian protection, what, what sort of red flags people should be looking for. It's, um, uh, there's been a lot of focus on this, you know, the impending, uh, you know, the impending fight and the, you know, the, the uh, advance towards Mosul, but, the, but there really has not been much um, uh, discussion about uh, what uh, what people should expect here. I wonder if that doesn't end up sort of backfiring as, uh, you know, people who expect this to be sort of a, a quickly wrapped up thing or, or potentially, you know, very difficult images emerge, you know, uh, you know, the, the risk of uh, civilian atrocities considering some of the fractioned uh, groups. Um, I just, I, I, this I seems like a perilous another, thing. I agree with you. I do think this is risky timing for the Obama administration and its legacy and also for the next administration, because essentially by by checking the box on Mosul, assuming that this Mosul campaign actually ends before this administration ends, which is 
you know, probably likelier than not, then where does the battle against ISIS shift next? Well, it shifts to Raqqa, which means that the first priority of the next president is to figure out what to do with Syria. Yeah. You know, so it's almost like, OK, I'm getting my victory and then I'm getting I did the yeah. easy part. I'm getting out of town. Now you get to deal with the right. tough stuff. So I, I actually think in some ways it's n- it's not just not a gift to a, a likely Clinton administration. It's the opposite. I actually disagree. I I think that um, – I mean not that I think it's a gift to Clinton, but I actually do think that this is uh, – the, the timing is probably coincidental vis-a-vis the presidential administ- uh, election. Uh, the administration has been saying for a long time that uh, they were getting ready to think about the battle for Mosul. Uh, it's actually been delayed a fair bit. Um, and, uh, it's a, to me, it's a surprise that it takes place this late, not a surprise that it takes place this early. And I would think it would be a, a very unfortunate thing if you delayed an operation to relieve literally a million people of, of ISIS rule, uh, because of uh, the appearance of the presidential election. And I think actually, if you want to fault the Obama administration on this, it makes more sense to fault them for not having gotten their crap together to deal with it this summer rather than, uh, fault them for, you know, handing Hillary a, a, a lemon, um, by dealing with Mosul and not Raqqa now. Although there were definitely a lot of noises being made that this Mosul operation wouldn't take place until after the election and that the reason it began now is because of pressure from the Iraqi government that they were mobilized, they had the political agreement of the Shia militias to stay out and they wanted to go ahead and do it when the timing was ripe on the ground. But so, that's ex- but that's so exactly Obama wanted to delay. But that's least. exactly my point. The point is it would be proper to fault him if given that if given that all the military components were there and the political components with respect to the Iraqi government were there, he had delayed on grounds that, you know, there was an elector election going on in the United States. That would have been a grotesque impropriety on his part, in my view. Agreed. Um, and so I think, I think it's wrongheaded to say, well, okay, but it, it hands Hillary a sort of a, a rotten apple. Uh, you do these things when they're ready to be done. And if I f- have a fault for the Obama administration, it's that they didn't get this done earlier, not that they didn't hold it until later. Okay, uh, let's move on to our next story. Uh, James Cartwright, who was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, once known as Obama's favorite general uh, for his closeness to the president, uh, pleaded guilty this week to a charge of lying to federal investigators uh, who were trying to find out who leaked information about Stuxnet, a.k.a. the Olympic Games cyber program against Iran's nuclear program, uh, to journalists. Cartwright uh, apparently was shown by investigators a number of quotes from a book by David Sanger of the New York Times and said that he was not the source of those quotes when, in fact, he was. Uh, and also lied to investigators about information that he shared with uh, Danny Klaibman, who was at Newsweek slash The Daily Beast at the time and working on Iran. Um, so what I found fascinating about this story, and I'm, I'm really anxious to hear what you guys think, um, 
it's not as if uh, Jim Cartwright, or Haas Cartwright to his friends, I guess, um, was the only source for Stuxnet. Um, many people had long assumed that he had talked to David Sanger, that he was a major source for it. Um, it is clear from reading Sanger's book and his coverage that he is not the only person he talked to. Uh, and it was generally the understanding that Cartwright was sent out with the blessing in some form of the White House uh, to talk about this program with journalists. And in fact, says in his statement uh, to the public, as does his lawyer, that these stories were already prepared and reported when he engaged the journalists. Uh, he was actually engaging in a well-worn practice of trying to stop certain information from getting out. So portrays himself as somebody who was saying, look, I'm going to talk to these journalists, but really to try to find out what they know and correct any misimpressions, which is something that senior administration officials frequently do after reporters have run the traps of their other sources. Um, and yet he's the one who gets charged. Uh, and there is, you know, I'm curious what you think, whether this is, is there politics involved here? I mean, Cartwright was a close friend, was a close ally of Obama. He did not have a lot of friends in the Pentagon. Uh, he learned, earned the enmity of secretaries of defense and senior generals by going around the chain of command to bring alternative plans about Afghanistan's surge to Obama. He wasn't really seen as a team player in that regard. And there are some who speculate that the knives were kind of always out for Cartwright. And why is he the one who's going down in this three year long leak investigation? And not being charged with leaking, by the way, uh, and when nobody else is uh, is being brought forward and charged with actually being the source of information. So there is a very simple answer to this question, and it is lying to the FBI. Right. It's not and, the crime. It's the cover-up. And he lied. There is, I, I mean, there is no, there is nothing in the world, not child porn, not terrorism, nothing that the FBI is more likely to insist that you be indicted for than lying to the FBI. And, and by the way, in the Clinton email, uh, testimony, when, when Jim Comey was, you know, is asked, you know, he specifically says we never charge people just for mishandling information. There has to be some exacerbating factor, some aggravating factor. One of the aggravating factors he names, lying to the FBI. And, you know, they charge this stuff really consistently. And I'm being a little bit flip in the way I'm describing it and making it sound a little self-interested on their part. But the truth is, it's it's actually really, I think, justifiable. They can't do their job if people don't, uh, you know, don't engage with investigations in a responsible or reasonable fashion. And if you, as the subject of or a witness in an investigation, uh, don't comport yourself uh, honestly, they will spend years coming after you. So the moral of and the story... In this case, they did. Go right. ahead, sorry. So the moral of the story, it's really simple. If you've leaked stuff and the FBI comes knocking at your door... Just tell them what you did. And if they ask you, did you talk to Danny Clydman? You, you just say, Danny Clydman is a guy who can sell you your own underwear. And he sold me mine. And I talked to him. And yes, I, and if they say, did you tell this thing to, to David Sanger? Then you say, why yes, I'm afraid I did say this thing to David Sanger. And look, I, I think General Cartwright is a very bright guy and I, and I feel for him. And, um, 
and I actually hope the president pardons him before he leaves office. Um, that said, if I were the FBI, I would uh, have I have pushed to have this case charged, and I just you know. I just don't Susan see. Looks like she disagrees with you. So I, I totally disagree with you, and I think the proof that this is plainly political is David Petraeus, right? He also lied to the FBI and then was was allowed to plead to a misdemeanor, right? Cartwright is is forced to plead to a felony. Look, I, I think that I don't think that this is a politically motivated investigation. It's it's the opposite of that. It's being investigated and then not having powerful political friends to protect you, and so the investigating the investigation sort of running its course. Um, so the thing isn't is that- there another ex- ex- exacerbating difference in Cartwright's case that this was a leak investigation and Petraeus wasn't leaking to the press. He wasn't. And so, you well, know, his biographer was claimed to be a journalist. Right. But yeah, it wasn't leaking in the sense of, you know, I have government secrets that I'm going to give you so that you can expose but he did. But it doesn't he appear. Full of code yeah, but, stuff. but 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 the di- the difference, I suppose, in Petraeus's favor. There's a lot of differences in Cartwright's favor here. But the difference in Petraeus's favor is that none of that stuff appears ever to have seen the light of day, and that you know, whereas this did blow a major, major COVID. Right. This but, is the but part this... that doesn't sort of make sense in terms of the public because he confirmed something that yes. was already known. It he doesn't known. appear to be the source and of And it's also not it. clear that he wasn't sent out by the White House to do this or by someone higher up. I mean, or maybe he was doing yeah, it under what he thought was his own authority. Question. But there's always been this understanding that Cartwright had some kind of permission to go and talk about this. And and maybe he overstepped his bounds in this instance, but like he very clearly says in his statement, I knew I was not the source for this story, but yes, I did lie to the FBI because I didn't want to be blamed for the leak. So... Right. So look, it's it's typical for particular individuals within sort of the administration or agencies to be designated as people who are who have permission to speak to the press. Um, they do so with the understanding that they, you know, are are appropriately protecting classified information. Right. There's sort of there's um, uh, only uh, senior level people that are sort of trusted with that um, are, are allowed to engage in those um, exchanges. And it sounds like this is an example of him. Uh, right, sort of, you know, going rogue or confirming something he didn't mean to. Um, I think it's sort of, there's a more, um, uh, there's a more difficult sort of problem that the administration's in and that the Justice Department's in. And that is that, um, people have, uh, specifically Petraeus, uh, got off the hook uh, when he probably shouldn't have. Um, uh, other people, sort of, um, you know, low-level individuals in the military, um, uh, certainly other people in the IC, have faced very, very serious consequences for uh, what many people would argue was um, uh, less egregious conduct and, and conduct without, with the same sort of, um, you know, where information never ultimately came out. And so there's always sort of, there, there's been this perception of, hey, there are different rules for different people, right? The rules for the people at the top and rules for people at the bottom. This is sort of egregious that that Petraeus got off um, sort of scot-free. And actually, we even um, heard Ash Carter talking about reopening the investigation to uh, potentially um, 
reduce his uh, rank. To right. reduce his rank, right? There's sort of there's a lot of um, uh, tension over there. Um, uh, then, of course, sort of the Hillary Clinton stuff is, is lumped in with that, although really very different in kind. But if you just kind of take the the Cartwright, Petraeus, um, and low level people, um, once you've done, uh, once you've let Petraeus get off the hook, you have a choice to make, right? You either then let other people get off the hook because if you punish them, it looks political and unfair or you say uh, that we maybe we made a mistake maybe he should have been uh, more seriously charged whatever happened but that's the past and now we're going to demonstrate our commitment for prosecuting high-level people because the important thing is the um, is not to perpetuate this this idea that um, that what matters is not necessarily political friends but rank right high-level people can get away with anything low-level people can't so I think that's why uh, sort of their their hands were more tied here because I, I do think they'd that, already let somebody off too easy is what you're saying exactly and if they'd let Cartwright off as well um, I think that would have only perpetuated uh, this belief so and I, so it's, it's a hard situation so I, I agree with that I also think I mean look if you again if you go back to Comey's testimony about uh, the Clinton email stuff he really objected uh in, and it's still pretty raw uh, to what Holder did in Eric Holder did in the Petraeus case. And, you know, and some of us, you know, I wrote about it at the time that I thought that plea was indefensible. Um, and so, you know, the explanation here may be that Holder, re- uh, that, that, that Petraeus reaped a kind of a windfall um, that Cartwright didn't get the benefit of, but I don't think there's anything surprising or political about Cartwright's, about the outcome here. You you lie to the FBI, they're going to follow you to the ends of the earth. Well, I think you also raise a really interesting question, Ben, about whether President Obama, now that he's pled guilty, and presumably he'll be sentenced in the coming weeks, whether Obama... Yeah. yeah. Whether Obama will then issue a pardon on his way out because he is Obama's favorite general or because he, he did go out and do this on behalf of the team or, you know, in a Scooter Libby kind of way. Um, it, is that the way this is ultimately going to be dealt with? And if that's the case, I think, Susan, it almost compounds the problem you're describing. And so to the extent that the FBI or the Justice Department feels pressure to demonstrate its rigor and even handedness in handling uh, these cases of classified information or of leaks, um, they still are going to have a problem on their hands. I just want to say that this actually bolsters the case. If Obama decides he would like to pardon uh, 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 Cartwright, it bolsters the case that Susan and I made uh, a, a few weeks ago for commuting the sentence of Chelsea Manning, because uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, if if he does this, there's a lot of going to be a lot of suggestion that uh, it shows the hypocrisy because he won't pardon Edward Snowden, uh, which he certainly should not do. Um, but if you wanted to soften that and you were advising Obama, you'd say, hey, if you want to. Uh, pardon Cartwright, there is a, a clemency that you could do with respect to a uh, lower level leaker uh, that has a lot to say for it. And that's not Snowden, but but Chelsea Manning. Uh, just as a preview, 
Uh, Cartwright is due back in court to be sentenced on January 17th. Ooh, doesn't so leave a lot of time. You can do a commutation or a pardon. Three days. Three days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, you're getting into Cap Weinberger's <laughs> territory there. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's we've been down that road before, so we've been in uncharted territory so much. It's so nice to have something familiar laid out before us. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next story. Uh, three men in Kansas were arrested and accused of being part of a right-wing group known as the Crusaders and plotting attacks on Muslims in the state of Kansas. Um, Susan, we're not in Kansas. What's going on over there? And thank God for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this What's is... What's the matter with Kansas? I don't know. Apparently... Uh, Nothing that a good crusade could no, exactly. yeah. um, Their failed crusade. Yeah, so this is, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's a very interesting case and, and an interesting um, example of domestic terrorism um, emerging from uh, from the far right, something that um, uh, a lot of people have, um, have alleged that there's sort of insufficient attention given um, uh, to sort of right-wing extremism versus uh, Muslim extremism. Um, so this is... Uh, uh, it, it was investigated as a domestic terrorism case. Of course, there is no substantive offense of domestic terrorism under federal law. Um, however, there is, uh, for investigative purposes, uh, there are domestic terrorism. Uh, uh, they do investigate domestic terrorism. So this is a sovereign citizen group. They're, they're anti-government. They're anti-Muslim um, and sort of anti-extremist uh, generally. Um, they are located in a town ironically called Liberal Kansas. I bet um, they love that. <laughs> Um, and uh, and these three men, Patrick Stein, Curtis Allen, and Gavin Wright, um, uh, essentially plotted to uh, blow up a building um, that housed both a mosque and uh, where many uh, Muslim immigrants from uh, uh, the Somali community lived. Um, sort of a clearly, you know, a hate crime. Um, uh, you know, had, had plotted the target, um, had surveilled it, sort of had, had taken those really um, uh, ominous, substantial steps um, before the FBI intervened. And they wanted to do it the day after Election Day, right? So they clearly tied it to this political campaign. And, and they were specifically, uh, you know, what they were plotting to do is, uh, you know, particularly scary. They were plotting multiple bombs built on the Tim McVeigh fertilizer model planted at different corners of of this uh, set of facilities. And so you could have imagined it being a very significant mass mass casualty yeah. event. Right. So absolutely, I think it's um, uh, this is the uh, the FBI deserves and the Joint Terrorism Task Force deserves a lot of credit for saving uh, probably hundreds of lives. Um, the thing that's sort of interesting about this case, not just because it validates some of the um, the fears about the the the, uh, the campaign rhetoric and sort of um, uh, the outgrowth of, of violent Islamophobia in general, um, but also that the FBI used uh, investigative methods here um, that are considered uh, contrary controversial in, um, uh, in investigating uh, uh, terrorism uh, related to foreign terrorist, or terrorist organizations or sort of Islamic terrorism. I guess that's the magic word people want to hear now. Um, uh, they used a paid confidential informant. Uh, uh, they... Um, had uh, consensual wiretapping, right? So, the, so the source agrees to be to be wiretapped. Um, they sort of uh, they essentially ran uh, ran an informant against them. Um, so this is something that um, uh, has gotten a lot of criticism in the past, just sort of as infiltrating communities, um, uh, you know, potentially leading to entrapment. Uh, these people are not reliable, um, and sort of there's um, uh, 
in particular, sort of civil liberties organizations really criticize this technique. Um, it, it clearly was incredibly successful in this case. Um, so it is interesting to um, sort of hear crickets from uh, or even uh, the same groups that condemn this activity um, with certain groups uh, lauding it here. Um, is there anything in the indictment that suggests entrapment or inappropriate encouragement. I mean, it seems to me one reason why maybe we're hearing crickets is because this is egregious. I mean, the planning and the conduct that's described here is egregious. So it's not one of these borderline cases where maybe they would have just been a talk shop, but for the FBI. No, but Susan, but Susan's point is very important that, you know, these are, these are tactics that are uh, often the bread and butter stuff of successful law enforcement operations in a counterterrorism context. And they've come into disrepute in certain communities because it's uh, assumed that they are uh, sort of deployed in an unfair way against Muslim communities. And, and this is a case where they are deployed in very much the same way to protect a Muslim community from uh, scary white people. Well, look, um, I, I don't and, think... And, and, and furthermore, I just I want to say one of the most moving things about this story uh, is that the Somali community in question had a demonstration uh, with, a, with American flags and to thank law enforcement for protecting them. And, you know, I, I think the story has just not gotten enough coverage uh, for a lot of reasons, but... but one of them is the point that Susan makes that this is, you know, this is the, 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 the violent extremist end of a lot of the rhetoric that, you know, some of our political leadership is using these days. And when you, when you stoke the, uh, the alt-right world, this is the corner of it that, uh, you know, to use the language that people use about Muslims a lot of the time, and, and I think justifiably so sometimes, you know, t radicalizes and, um, you know, and, and, and we have to think about this in the language of, you know, countering violent extremism. But the other reason is exactly the point that Susan makes the, in the other direction, which is that, um, this is, uh, th these tools are important for investigating uh, violent groups irrespective of their orientations and in a world in which, a political world in which, you know, going after Muslims is politically acceptable, uh, we're going to see a lot more of this and law enforcement is going to need the tools to to do this just as it needs the tools to go after you know, ISIS uh, sympathizing self-radicalizers. One thing that I'm sort of surprised is that this, um, in terms of the lack of media coverage, is that this hasn't been more directly tied to Donald Trump's campaign. Um, so... Uh, uh, sort of we're, we're on track for, um, I guess, the worst year on record in terms of um, Islamic phobic violence. There were 78 mosque attacks in 2015. Um, we're sort of we're on track to um, to pass that. Um, and just reading this, um, you know, UC Berkeley uh, tracks with um, 
uh, with CARE, the uh, the number of uh, uh, anti-Muslim violence, um, and, and they noted that um, not only uh, incidents in 2015 uh, tripled in compared to the past two years, um, and in November and December of 2015, there were 17 mosque incidents during each of those months, numbers almost equivalent to the entire year's worth of reports. So clearly sort of directly t- tracking to the rise of Donald Trump, um, sort of the, the most hateful elements of his campaign. Um, one of the things that's included in this indictment is um, is a conversation in which one of the uh, informants, uh, one of the uh, 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 alleged perpetrators says, um, make sure you start using your bows on them, cockroaches, cockroaches being the um, the Muslims, uh, make sure you dip them in pig's blood before you shoot them. Um, this is a direct reference to, of course, the um, the myth about General Pershing uh, dipping bullets in, in pig's blood b- before uh, shooting Muslims, um, strongly identified with, uh, with racist themes, um, um, picked up by Donald Trump in, in sort of in a very bizarre way. I, it just there there are so um, uh, the indicia here that these people were inspired by the rhetoric um, and and really were plotting an incredible act of violence timed for right after the election. Uh, the fact that that has sort of nobody's really keying into that. I, I'm really surprised. Well, yeah, vi- I mean, violent acts that don't happen, you know, never never acquire the same salience as the ones that do. Or And especially violent acts. Like, after the Oklahoma City bombing, there was a lot of news coverage of all kinds of right-wing extremist activity in the United States. If there had been some kind of attack, you know, then everything after that would get more coverage. But because we haven't seen any of that in a while in the United States, thank goodness... Um, it, yeah, it, it just falls into that dog that didn't bark category that Ben just described. But, you know, honestly, I, I don't think the FBI would have to, um, use all of these, you know, informants and, and wiretapping and these controversial tactics if the crusaders would just report when they hear, exactly. you know, Christian that the communities have got to be looking among their ranks. Yeah. And they should report. I, I could not agree more. Hashtag Christians report. And yes. as a Christian, I apologize on behalf <laughs> of these men. It's just this is it's outrageous. All right. Let's move on to object, object lessons. Um, I'll go first. My object is actually a, it's sort of an update to a story we talked about on the podcast before uh, that Susan talked a lot about, about uh, this company Muddy Waters which I just thought was one of my favorite names for a company. I've heard this investment company uh, all year long. Right. <laughs> uh, basically shorted, correct me if I'm wrong in retelling the story, Susan, but shorted uh, stock along with another group uh, um, in St. Jude, the medical device manufacturer, and then publicized the security vulnerabilities that St. Jude's, they said, had in its products in order to drive the stock down and then profit from it and also to get St. Jude's to fix its profits. Um, St. Jude's retaliated by filing a lawsuit against Muddy Waters, uh, MedSec, and other companies, as well as three executives at the firm, alleging that they were uh, sending out dis- disseminating false and misleading information about some of its products, including a, a pacemaker, um, to which Muddy Waters and MedSec have now started a website called Profits Over Patients. It says, come to ProfitsOverPatients.com for updates to our defense against St. Jude Medical's attempt to sweep revelations about its extremely poor cybersecurity under the rug through a lawsuit, and then proceeds to show videos on how they actually hacked the devices. 
um, which is sort of a videos like watch as we stop this guy's heart. Well, like, watch as we watch as we hit this device. I mean, these are video. <laughs> One is called like uh, emergency shock, uh, where they ha- hack into the device, as you can see right here, and sort of show how they did it, uh, or at least claim to show how they did can it. Can I do that to my teenager if he won't get out of bed in the morning? <laughs> sure. Like, send an emergency shot? Sure you can. Well, that's one way to, to gin up some sympathy. <laughs> yeah. So they're taking it. Profitsoverpatients.com. Wow. <laughs> that's uh, excellent. I, as I said when you raised this issue on, on, on a previous show, I totally support this as a cybersecurity mechanism. If people can can profit by by uh shorting stocks of companies that are not responding to cybersecurity incidents and then embarrassing them uh i say god bless and see but i think that your uh your statement reveals um the ill-conceived nature of profits over patients because of course <laughs> i think the profits they mean to refer to are the profits of st jude's for not fixing it but what right. it actually sounds like is of course that they also have profited so <laughs> no, I, look, I, I, well I mean, they want to don't they uh, yeah, instead I, of a charge it seems like like a rallying cry well, yeah. profits over so, I, 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 so so i i i assume that they were imputing that attitude to saint jude's but i just i just think it's a creative approach to financing cybersecurity, and i think there are probably a lot of people with these particular pacemakers who would benefit from St. Jude's uh, squirming a little bit and feeling like the fire was turned up on, uh, under their asses to uh, fix this problem quickly. And, and if somebody can profit by, by holding their feet to that particular fire, I got no problem with that. There we um. go. I have an object lesson okay. as well. Um, so my object lesson is a picture uh, that I took this weekend in the uh, old executive office building at the White House. It's, I guess the Eisenhower building now we're supposed to call it. Um, so I have a friend who is um, leaving the administration and after um, refusing to give anyone a white West Wing tour. Of course, the East Wing tours are public. The West Wing tour, you have to know someone. They didn't give a um, tour? They said so you can get a West Wing tour. You cannot. You cannot get a public West Wing. I was tour saying your then. friend didn't give a tour. Oh well, not before, but she did this weekend. Oh, so she's. She um, the end. Uh, I sort of understand, right? Otherwise, she would have been a full-time tour guide. Um, so we did get to go, um, you know, see the Oval Office and the Roosevelt Room and all this sort of. Um, it was very uh, uh, fun and and neat to see all of that. Um, but uh, the old executive office building, which is just an absolutely stunning. It's uh, one of the best buildings in Washington. It's it's much better than sort of than than the actual West Wing itself. I mean, just these... Architecturally, just beautiful. And yeah. all of the little sort of um, statues and details and yeah. furniture the and they molding, preserved it. The mantelpieces. The skylights. I mean, yeah. it really is Mansard like a, a beautiful yes. museum. Um, uh, and uh, an all-gender bathrooms. I also um, mm-hmm. took a picture of the all-gender bathroom sign at the OEO. So, thanks, um, Obama. Thanks, Obama. Um, uh, so that is my object lesson is the... Uh, the beautiful, the beautiful OEO. OEO. <laughs> so I've got an object lesson that wasn't, uh, which is, you know, listeners of Rational Security know that I have purchased a device um, to enable myself to throw fireballs. And since I debuted, <laughs> because you are insane. <laughs> and since I debuted this device on Rational Security. I have used it in a variety of contexts. Um, I 
threw a fireball to introduce a guest speaker to my Georgetown class. And, um, and, you know, so I, I, and I've practiced with it a lot and I've gotten used to throwing fireballs. And I was giving a, uh, on a panel today at New America. And I thought this was the day that I was going to launch a fireball from the dais. <laughs> In a think tank panel. Yeah. And cause that's I, what the world needs. Cause that's mm-hmm. what the world needs, uh, was a fireball. And I even had the perfect, uh, wasn't it a counterterrorism panel? It was a counter rule of law and counterterrorism <laughs> foundations panel. And I had the perfect moment in the speech planned out to do it, which was that I was going to tell the story of, uh, my former research assistant, Cody Poplin, who had on his door a New Yorker cartoon of the Constitutional Convention, uh, where the founders are standing around and the caption reads, uh, and of course we should give the executive branch the, uh, the authority to rain death from the skies. And as I said, from the skies, I rain death from the skies, I was going to launch a fireball. And it all went beautifully, except that the fireball launcher didn't work. And so we got to and rain death from the skies. And I like look must have looked like an idiot Threw my hand out like I was throwing a fireball. No fireball emerged. And so I went on with the speech. (laughs) Did you acknowledge, hey, guys, there was supposed to be a fireball? No, because like since nobody's expecting a fireball when you give a speech at a think tank. Like that would have required so much explanation that actually I'm wearing a it's like fireball. Ben's thrower. Six word memoir for sale fireball. <laughs> <laughs> Never fired. And so I I there will come a time when the first fireball launched from the dais at a think tank uh panel will happen in Washington. Uh, but not today. But not ben. today. Not it will today. not be this day. <laughs> they probably picked a good place to do it. Probably about half the new America audience would have gotten a kick out of it. Yeah. yeah I, like, I, I think, Ooh, that's so high tech. And the, the annoying <laughs> thing is that right afterwards, I walked out with a friend we were going to lunch afterwards. And I, you know, so I had this loaded fireball thrower um, on my wrist. And I was like, all right, I got to empty this thing. And I pushed the button again and it went, and I did it, you know, and launched them both it scared the crap out of a woman who was walking down the street next to me but um that's you know, your consolation in prize ben the moment the f- it was a total fireball fail which should be a hashtag by the way oh fireball fail well next time ben there'll be next other time. times yeah uh and it's probably best that you didn't uh give it away because they might not have you back <laughs> <laughs> All right, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, if you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or your other favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out and helps other people find the podcast as well. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Melania Trump and the Bully Riggers. Oh. Somehow, like... Bully. And, and I get it. Anything with Melania Trump is almost by definition not funny. Yeah. She just stands in the front and just kind of vamps and just pouts. <laughs> yeah. And turns side to side. She is a humorless person, if ever there was one. Yeah. And she believes her husband. She Well, she maybe the last one in America. <laughs>
<laughs> of course, our music is performed as always by Sophia Yan, who is bullying her all the bully in all the best ways. Yep. And rigs nothing. That piano plan is all her. It's all real. On behalf of my friends, uh, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Ben Wittis, Sons Fireball, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the debate. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 